Our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I first heard, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path from my grandmother Blanche. She so loved God and so loved the petit Jesus or little Jesus, as she would say. See, I grew up uh, in a Canadian province that had originally been a Roman Catholic mission from the country of France. Every street sign is Saint this one or Saint that one. My public elementary school where I received weekly catechism lessons is called Saint Anne and is located right next to the church. There was very little that was secular around us. Throughout my town, large mosaics of Mother Mary holding her baby were found just about everywhere. No wonder we thought of Jesus as little and fragile. And ooh, we did not want to disappoint him, my grandmother would often say. Who wants to make a baby sad? I would shape up every time she reminded me my behavior would hurt the petit Jésus. Churches were in crisis during my uh, parents' adulthood. Everyone started turning away and everything became secular after too many years of religious authorities overstating their power and rights in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So the Catholic Church being in crisis in my province meant that the church started to listen more, to become more welcoming. And so it was a wonderful experience for me. I was able to be an acolyte and to be a servant of the church I loved, even if my parents didn't go on Sunday mornings. Because the church and my elementary school were side by side, one block away from my house, I spent much of my time on the property, sliding down the hill in the winter and in the basement for school functions, for Christmas gatherings and funeral receptions. The basement was where we transferred to when a fire broke out and smoke filled our school hallways when I was in the second grade. 
in the middle of February at minus 30 degrees Celsius, we crossed the courtyard without our winter jackets in our well-practiced fire line formations, and we found comfort in the familiar church basement. And it is in this sanctuary that I played a few piano recitals, that I sang in the children's choir, that I had my first and last vocal solo. <laughs> I even got pretend married with my first grade crush, Francois, on the steps of the church. And he's an orchestra conductor today, so things could have really worked out. But I think the marriage got dissolved in second grade when I met Olivier, who was also very fond of the movie E.T., just as I was. The priest lived across the street from the church, and I was invited in their homes to discuss my big dream of being a missionary nun in Africa. I knew of Mother Teresa, and I looked up to her, and I wanted to do the same work. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. I had more walking to do. The Lord placed in my path an incredibly loving American man that I would marry, who would walk with me as I continued my graduate piano studies in Tampa. The Lord placed in my path a piano professor that was also a children's choir director, and she invited me to leave my solitary hours in a practice room to discover a room filled with singers my professor encouraged me to make music with others rather than alone. The Lord placed in my path a mentor and friend who thought I could somehow follow Julie Rohrer, the music director of 47 years at Bee Ridge Presbyterian Church, where I would also start my children's choir and become the director of the Choral Society. The Lord placed in my path a few years later a little Greek restaurant on Bee Ridge Road where I would someday randomly meet a certain pastor, Reverend Dr. Stephen McConnell, who thought that I could somehow follow in the footsteps of John Ferreira, music director of 25 years at Church of the Palms with a large music program and a large congregation. The Lord placed in my path amazing colleagues and staff, a music family like no other, which included an old and humble choir member who made me realize as, I, as he was dying that I wanted to do a lot more than wave my arms and ask people to sing softly or to sing with gusto. The bow I wanted to take was not in front of an audience anymore, but before God and before the people I get to serve. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. A mountain is a mountain. It's not a walk in the park. It's not the beach. It's not a flat Florida road. I enjoy hiking very much and there is no mountain I have climbed that did not find me at some point saying, ah, this is so hard. I want to stop and go down. So I have wanted to stop many times in the middle of Hebrew and Greek 
in church history and doctrine classes. I have wanted to turn around when the pandemic was filled with unknowns, when I couldn't even plan more than 24 hours a day, it seemed, in advance due to the constantly fluid situation. I have found the road very steep in the middle of ordination exams, or when many of my music ministry people were suffering, or when they went home to God, bless their souls. But on all the mountains I have hiked, there have been stopping points to take it all in, to realizing the progress made from the foot of the hill, to admire the views from a new vantage point, which in life we call growth. There are many times when we stop and we see how much we have grown even with bruised knees and sore legs and tiredness in our mind and soul, we take a deep mountain breath, one that fills our lungs with clean air, one that is so refreshing that we cannot do anything but smile and give thanks to God for all the beauty that surrounds us. So what is wonderful for me to realize in this re reflection of my sense of call today is that I am responding to God's call and that we are all responding to God's call in our own way. The key word to our Christian life is response. From our baptism, we're called to walk on this path to the mountain. All of us are called to sing in the choir, to praise God. All of us are called to be a shepherding deacon, to be an usher, to be a ruling elder, to visit the sick, to knit prayer shawls, to be a teaching elder, to serve as a youth mentor, to give our hard-earned money to the church, to fill the pew racks, to bring peanut butter to the pantry, and to light candles. We are all called and invited to all these things and we respond to what lights a fire in our soul. We respond by offering our personal best gifts to God. And we all receive the same invitation to go on the mountain of the Lord. There are many paths, but we all anticipate the same reward in heaven when we respond. So as we enter this season of Advent, we take a deeper look at the light of Christ in the world, at how the petit Jésus comes into the world after a long wait. We remember the people of Israel who faced the mountain of the Lord and how often they wanted to turn around and go back. And we don't look at the mountain in the distance, we walk on its path. We don't stare at the light, we let it illuminate our path. When God calls, we don't let the phone ring. We answer, offering our very best gifts. The light of God has guided me here on this path, and my gifted, gifted community has encouraged me on this road. And with God's grace, I bow down as I continue on the road to life eternal. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Hear now the word of the Lord. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the word just read point to the word to come, and may it all work together to point to the word made flesh, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's an old story about a farmer who is tending to his barren and sort of uncooperative field one day when he sees a strange cloud formation, and it contains what look like the letters GPC. And he takes this to be a call from God to go preach Christ. He's very excited, so he drops his plow and he rushes to his church where he tells his elders what he's seen and insists that he's been called to preach. Well, they want to honor his passion and his certainty, so way is made for him to be in the pulpit that Sunday morning. And the morning arrives, and the farmer proceeds to preach a sermon so long and so incomprehensible and so boring that the congregation is left either asleep or in stunned silence. Finally, a wise elder breaks the silence and says, perhaps the clouds were saying, go plant corn. (laughs) It is true that calling can be difficult to discern on our own. When I first felt a stirring in me, a calling to become a pastor, I tried to dismiss it. And this was a very practical response on my part. If this was, in fact, a job offer coming from God, I determined myself to be both unqualified and unavailable. I was baptized in a little Methodist church, and I spent a few years in a a Catholic elementary school, but I didn't really have any formal faith training or formation as a child or a young adult. I found Jesus in my 30s. I already had a master's degree, and here I was in my 40s with two teenagers in my home. I thought I must have misread the clouds. I must have misheard the call. Even after I began working for this church, which I love so much, and I started attending seminary, I did so with some hesitation as to like where it was all headed. It didn't help that there were some confusing reactions from others to this new direction. One neighbor, when I told him I was going to seminary, asked me if that meant I was going to be a nun. <laughs> and we eventually agreed that this would be very troubling news for my husband, Steve. 
And I was able to just give him a basic introduction to the Reformed faith, which was quite thrilling. Life does not present many of those opportunities. Despite such confusing exchanges and moments of hesitation, I have listened for God's voice at each step of the journey, asking again and again, still God? Are you sure, God? Many days, most days, I feel really confirmed in my calling. But on the hardest days, when I have felt humbled to the point of paralysis by this calling, I had Pastor Mingy there to gently and sometimes not so gently, prod me forward. I had Pastor Lori always willing to listen, and I've had Pastor Steve there encouraging and supporting me one step at a time. And they're not the only ones. Lucky for me, I have not been left to discern or grow in my calling alone. What's more, my call, my gifts, I've always understood them to be a piece of something so much bigger than me. My calling is a piece of our calling. The letter to the Ephesians is written to members of the early church, and this part of the letter is meant to tell them, sort of practically speaking, how to live. Some of this advice relates to gifts that have been bestowed on them. Some of the passage relates to how to be worthy and successful in our calling. And its message, I think, distills down to this. We are ultimately all called to one call, one goal, and that is to build up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And achieving this one call It turns out we can't do it alone. We can only do it together. And as such, each of us is to approach this shared call with humility, with patience, with gentleness. We are all called to one call and our ability to respond successfully is totally reliant on our bearing with one another in love. So my call only matters when it's combined with yours. My calling, your calling, they're totally wrapped up in us being in interdependent, humble relationship with one another. And it all makes me think of rowing. Both of my children row with Sarasota Crew, as did uh, Yoko and Jonathan's son Sebastian and two of Miss Carol's boys. And it's a sport that has taught my kids many, many lessons. And the greatest, I think, though, is that of interdependence. Both of my kids prefer to row in boats that have eight rowers and a coxswain. I'll call them eights. And there are no heroes in eights. There's no star player, no MVP. There is a complete surrender of ego to the best interest of the boat. In the popular book, The Boys in the Boat, it tells the unlikely story of nine working-class boys from Washington who, against all odds, win the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And its message touched me deeply. One of the boys in the boat is a boy named Joe, and Joe's had a really hard life, a life of struggle and abandonment in the middle of the Great Depression, no less. And it's all worked together to really teach Joe that you can't count on anyone other than yourself. So he goes to the University of Washington, and he joins the crew team, and he works hard, and he has some natural giftedness, and he pushes himself. But despite his individual efforts, the boats into which he's placed continue to struggle. 
what he comes to learn is that he has to surrender his fear to trust the other boys in the boat and to let his effort give way to their effort. And when Joe finally surrenders, gives his gifts over to the boat, well, then they fly to an Olympic gold medal, no less. There's something in rowing that is hard to define and even harder to achieve called swing. The book says that swing only happens when eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by anyone is out of sync with those of all the others. Then the boat begins to run, unchecked fluidly and gracefully between the poles of the oars. Then it feels as if the boat is a part of each rower, moving as if on its own. Rowing then becomes a kind of perfect language, like poetry. Joe's coach and boat craftsman George Pocock said, The spiritual value of rowing is the losing of self entirely to the cooperative effort of the crew as a whole. The losing of self entirely to the cooperative effort of the crew as a whole. And this is, I think, a wonderful metaphor for Christian life. Rowing, it would seem, is not that different than being a part of the church. We each bring our gifts and we give them all over in service to the one call we share, helping each other find the right seats along the way. We are all in the same boat, and you have helped me to find my seat. My discerning call has really been our discerning call, our reading the clouds. And what's more, my gifts, my call, well, they've always been bound up with the gifts and callings of other people. I've had John and Jean and friends and family and my if table girls and the family promise team and those on the mission committee and the Wilkinson team and so many wonderful teenagers and young adults and our staff and our pastors. And there's just never been a single moment when I've been in a single shell on my own. We are, after all, friends, a priesthood of all believers. And so we bear with one another in love. And with humility and with patience, we take our seats and we row.